We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. So I'd come out here and I'd go to clubs and the black women were like, so where are you, man? You, you know, and I was like, I'd go to clubs and either the women dressed like Jay-Z or they looked like Lil Kim. It was there was nothing in between. The, the women looked yeah. like Jay Z yeah, or Lil Kim. It was either you had to, you know a lot of the clubs I went to, and in New York, you know the more stud women were do rags and string vests and baggy jeans, and they were very masculine presenting, and their girlfriends were very feminine, short skirts, weaves, all of that. And I wasn't either of that. I was kind of androgynous in my look, so I struggled to get girlfriends when I first came out here because people be like, where are you though? Your, your hair's straight, but you got a t-shirt that hangs off your shoulder. Like, are you starting? You fa- what are you? And I'd be like, I'm just Gina. I'm just This is just how I am. I'm just... So it was a struggle. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Gina Yashiri is an amazing British-Nigerian comedian. She's the writer, creator, and an actor on Bob Hart's Abishola, an amazing sitcom on CBS. We recorded this before the actors went on strike, talking about being a comic, about Bob Hart's Abishola, and Gina's incredible life. Let's get into it. It's Gina Yashiri on Touré Show. Gina, what makes people laugh? What makes people... Anything can make people laugh. You just... As a comedian, my job is just to hone in on the parts of my personality and my stories that you can relate to and laugh with me on. So anything can make people laugh. It, yeah. it depends on your humor, your personality, your upbringing, your environment. Oh, it's so many things. Part of what I love about you is stories. You get a lot of stories. I don't, I like the people who do like pinpricks of jokes. I'm like, that's fine. But like telling stories yeah. from your life, other, whatever, your girlfriend's life. And like, now I'm like engaged and with you and what happened next. <laughs> and like, there's not enough people who tell stories, but building a story is hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, when I first started doing comedy, I didn't think I was telling stories. I was writing jokes, Yeah, but I was writing jokes based on my experiences. And so as I've, as I've got more, more experienced in the business and started delving deeper into what I'm about, then they became longer stories. And then I enjoy telling a good piece. I like a piece. Yeah. It's like a big set piece. Yeah. And how it starts, I I don't sit down and go, oh, I'm going to write a story. I just, something will happen and I'll go, that'd be interesting. And I'll just go on stage and tell the story. And if it's funny and 
audiences react to it, I go, okay. And then I embellish it, I embellish it and build on it over time. And that's how my stories come about. I don't, I don't have particular, and I'm not one of those people that sits down and goes, I'm going to write some stuff. I don't. You write on stage. Yeah. I yeah. Do. Yeah, yeah. 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 Part of the beauty with the story is I'm probably going to laugh at the end, but you're making me laugh throughout. Oh, yeah. Hopefully, right? And I'm oh, on the yeah. edge of my seat and following you, oh, even yeah. if you're in this sentence, is it funny? But I'm still like, and what next? And what? And, but you're going to make me laugh oh, over yeah. and over. So I'm not necessarily expecting the rhythm of like when the laughs are going to come. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a comedian. So, first port of call, I got to commit. <laughs> I got to make you laugh. So, yeah, I'm telling a long story, but I've got to punch it. My, I'm always going for the laugh in between. So, I, although I'm building the story and building the narrative, I need you to be laughing all the way through it because that's otherwise it's a TED talk. <laughs> like, <laughs> but building a story, but building a story is harder. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. But I'm I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. I was always okay. trying to make people laugh. So I've the storytelling part of it has never come. It's never been difficult for me. And the making people laugh, I all I, I don't know. I had an innate sense of humor from childhood, and I used it. Were you a funny kid? I was a funny kid, and I also used that to deflect from, uh, you know, uh, confrontations. I used to get into a lot of fights at school. So I had to learn early on to go, I, unless you, I'm going to get expelled from school forever for beating people up on a daily basis, I've got to think of another way to get out of confrontations. And I started using my humor early on from about the age of 10, 11. Yeah. Did, were you disrupting the classroom type jokester? I was. I was. <laughs> I was one of those kids because I – I was pretty clever as a kid, pretty smart. So I'd finish my work early and then I'd get bored. Yeah. And then I'd be messing around in the classroom and making my friends laugh. But most of the, the use of my humor came from because I was a child of African immigrants in yeah. London. Nigeria, yeah. Yeah, Nigerian immigrants in London in the 80s. We weren't cool. Like Afrobeats was taking over the world. Nigerians the coolest in the world right now. But when I was a kid, we weren't cool. And I used to get uh, picked on and laughed at for my mum's clothes, my mum's accent, my name, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was constantly fighting kids. So I had to learn to negotiate those situations differently. And that's where the humour came in. Were you the funny one at home? You know what? All of us in our family are pretty funny. Like okay. my, two, my two brothers specifically, who are, I'm closer to in age, we're all hilarious. We spent our entire childhood just roasting each other on a constant basis. <laughs> so my skills uh, uh, were learned from hanging with my brothers. So we're all funny. I, I was the craziest one, for sure. What does that mean? Uh, I would, like, you know, I was the mom, one that my mum was like, I knew from Beth you were going to be crazy. I came after twins. So my older brother, my older sister was a twin. Her twin died at birth, but I didn't know that. But so apparently I had a lot of room in my mother's womb. And one day she was being checked on by student doctors and they couldn't find me because I'd gone walk about in the womb. And I've never so, heard of that. Yeah. So my mom says, from that day, I knew when you came out, you were going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you done that is crazy? Uh, well, I've uh, jumped out of plane. My, let's put it this way. My mother, it was super overprotective of us as kids. We weren't allowed to go in a, anywhere, do anything. Never had a sleepover, never went to parties, never... Never went to a party? No, uh, not till I was 18 and I just went. Uh, never did uh, extracurricular activities. I was a pretty uh, talented athlete as a kid. I was a really good sprinter. Wow. And uh, my mom, and they wanted me to join 
you know, be a hundred meter sprinter for the school and for the for the local, you know, the athletics federation. And my mother was like, "So wait, you are going to miss lessons to go and run?" No, that's not happening. What lessons? You know, because sometimes you'd have to miss school oh, to go oh, on, on oh. these meets. And my mom was like, no. "Oh no!" So she never let us do anything as kids. So I had this urge to travel and see the world and do things differently. So. Uh, I did many crazy things, riding motorbikes, jumping out of planes, all that kind of stuff. When I was 17, I tricked my mother into letting me go to France for a month because I told her it was part of the school curriculum that if I didn't go on this trip, I would fail the exam. And failure and exams together is kryptonite for immigrant parents. And basically, I I, I persuaded a bunch of my friends because my mum came to see me off at the train station and I persuaded a bunch of my friends to turn up at the train station with suitcases to make it look like a school trip. And then Oh, this was just a Gina trip. Oh, it was a Gina trip. Just just me. I said, I'm going to France. I want to learn. I I was learning French. I want to speak it fluently. I applied for to the local education authority for a grant because they were giving out grants to kids to travel and expand their horizons. So I applied for this grant. I got it. And I was like, oh, shit, I've got this grant. They're going to pay for my travel, pay for my accommodation, pay for me to go and do a course in France. And But my mom ain't going to let me go. I've got to figure out a way. And so I tricked her into saying, listen, this, this exam, my French exam, you know, if you want me to be a doctor, a bilingual doctor makes more money. So I need to pass this exam and you have to let me go on this trip. So, yeah, I got all my friends to come to the train station <laughs> with suitcases. My mum saw us all off. Bye-bye. And then they all got off and went home. And I went on to France and had an adventure for a month on my own in France. I did a course. I had a little boyfriend there. I slept rough in Paris. My mother never knew until my book came out last year. And then it was one of the chapters in my book. And that's how she found out. Wait, so what happened when she's like, wait a minute, you you lied to me? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's too late then. I'm a grown-ass woman. Now. No, she yeah, do, but... Beat me? No, she of was course. Like, oh. She was like, oh, so you were doing all these things. And I was like, yeah, but look, I still turned out okay. I didn't die. I wasn't murdered by a serial killer. I didn't end up pregnant at 15 on drugs. True. Uh, but you know, you mom, pretty well. but mom, you turned out great. Yeah. But mom's like, but you lied to me. <laughs> yeah. That's deep. That's deep. No, wait, you have a whole bit about coming out to your mom and at the same time you're talking about coming out to her as a comedian as well, right? As well as coming out to her. And it ties into this whole true thing about like immigrant parents and not just Nigerian, Mm -hmm. like all sorts of immigrant parents are like, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can be a failure, Mm -hmm. right? And like you were an engineer, Mm -hmm. so you're like close enough to the goal. And then you're like, screw that. I want to be a comic. Yeah. And I'm also going to just tell you I'm gay because yeah. we're already. Well so what, re- what was you do? You do a bit about it. That's hysterical. But what really happened when you were like, I'm going to be a comic. I got to come. I got to tell mom that. And did you really tell her both those things at the same time? I, that, now, what really they, happened? They were a few months apart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but it was like a cumulative effect of just my mom just going, what the hell is happening? What is happening? Um, so, yeah, I left engineering. I mean, I didn't mean to leave engineering. I was an engineer. I was going to be an engineer. I was going to work my way up the ladder. Um, but I was working for Otis at the time. I was there, f- uh, which is the biggest elevator company in the world. I was their first woman engineer 
in their hundred year history amazing. in the UK. Good for you. Which sounds amazing, but it was absolutely horrific because <laughs> I was the first woman and black to boot. And I'm working on uh, construction sites with white men who just don't believe you. Don't believe that I should exist, let alone exist in their space. So, so they're you not know, listening. Oh, they're... my work consisted of coming in in the morning, putting on my overalls and pulling banana skins out of my overall pockets or coming in and there's pictures of apes and monkeys, uh, you know, glued to the wall above my equipment. That kind of stuff I put up with on a daily basis. P <clears throat> White men talking about how they would never let black people move into their area. Uh, niggas this, niggas, like it was, a, it was pretty horrific. Uh, one day I actually had to pull a guy aside and I said, you call me a nigga one more time and I will send my two brothers. I got two, two of them in my family and I will send them around your house. So let, like, do you want to do this? Do you really want to? And he never spoke to me again. But so this was Good. basically what I put up with on a daily basis as an engineer with Otis. And I stuck it out for four years because I was like, I'm going to prove that I can do this job. You're not going to drive me out. And I worked my way up to a point where I was promoted to, the, to a position where I should be able to run my own site. <clears throat> and this is where things went wrong because I, I was like, I'm, I've done all the jobs. I've, I've completed my training period. I should be able to run my own site. And I, I've got the qualifications. I've done what I'm supposed to do within this company. And they were like, yeah, you have. <clears throat> yeah, thing is, the guys ain't going to listen to a woman telling them what to do on a building, on a construction site. So here's the thing, we'll give you the money, but we can't give you the responsibility. And we can't let you work on your own like you're supposed to, because if you fall down the elevator shaft and you can't get pregnant, you could sue us and we don't want that. So we'll just give you the promotion, but we'll just leave you where you are. And I was like, well, that's not what I've come into this company for. That There's no way. That's ridiculous. And I went to my union. I went to my union and my union... Uh, my union rep, like, had been paying into the union consistently for four yeah. years. And my union rep turned around and went, yeah, we don't really know about this, uh, these women's things, so we can't, we ain't going to. So they refused to represent me at my, because I'd, ta I'd taken out a grievance procedure yeah. against the company saying I'm being discriminated against. Yeah. And my union refused to represent me. We don't know about this women's stuff. <gasps> so... Obviously, I went to that grievance procedure by myself. And surprise, surprise, I was overruled. I lost. So after that, I was like, i got to get out of here. There's nowhere for me to go. And in the mid-90s, they were making people redundant. The building industry went through a slump, and they were making engineers redundant. They were never going to make me redundant because I was their poster girl yeah. on, all their, on all their brochures, like with my tools, just, look at us, we got a black girl. And I marched into so my manager's office and said, you're going to make me redundant. You're going to lay me off. Otherwise, I'm going to go public with this discrimination I've been suffering for the last four years. And they were like, okay. And they let me go. And it was in that you interim that I fell into comedy. Four years? Four years. Wow. Yeah. Wait. So what said, I mean, obviously we understand the fuck engineering part, yeah. but what said, go comedy? Yeah, there was no fuck engineering part. I left Otis and I was like, I'm going to spend this money that I got paid off. I'm going to enjoy the summer because it happened kind of in the summer. And then I'm going to get another job because I'd had another job before Otis, which is fine. I'd so you worked, wanted to continue in engineering? Yeah, I'd, I'd worked for British Telecom, which is kind of the British version of AT&T. And sure. I'd yeah. worked wiring up telephone lines and stuff before I left and worked for Otis. 
So I'd had other engineering jo- jobs before that had not been as horrific as that. Okay. <clears throat> so I was going to stay in the industry. I was going to get another job. And it was in that interim, I kind of, people always told me I was funny, told me I should act, told me I should do stuff. So I was like, well, while I'm having this summer having a fun, I'm going to do some things that I'd never thought I would be able to do. I'm going to, you know, and I joined the Nation of Islam for about 10 minutes. I was <laughs> okay. a very angry person. Okay. And I needed to go amongst my people yeah. and learn my history and get, you know, and yeah. get just, and Nation of Islam was perfect for that for me, for, for to a point. Because right. then, you know, I didn't want, you know, it was very respectful of women, but also very, sister, you cannot speak like Sister, you. I asked too many questions, and I was too mouthy for a woman, so it didn't work out. But it gave me solace for a while, and in that time, I started working with black sort of um, groups and doing stuff within the community, fundraisers and things like that. You know, food banks, things like that, helping poor black people, whatever in the community. And one particular group was doing a fundraiser. They're like, "We're doing a fundraiser. We need singers, dancers, poets." And uh, me and a couple of friends of mine were always messing around doing our mum's accents. And so I wrote what I thought was a play to perform at this fundraiser that me and my two friends performed. And it turned out it wasn't a play. It was a comedy sketch. And people laughed all the way through it. And I was like, oh, I like that. I want to do more of that. And basically, we took this one sketch I wrote and we kept going into talent competitions all over London and winning these competitions with this one sketch that I wrote. And on one particular day, two of the girls didn't turn up for a competition that we were in. One had been burgled or something. Someone broke into a house. The other girl had gone to help her. And we're, for, we're at the semifinals of this competition. And they're like, you're up next. Where are your girls? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, well, you either go up next or you, you're, you're out of the competition. So I went up on stage and talked for 10 minutes, and told a couple of stories and people laughed and, I got us through to the final of this competition and people were coming up to me and you're a stand-up. That's what you do. You're a stand-up. And I was like, stand-up? What is this? But I like the sound of it. And that's how I ended up doing comedy. I started looking into stand-up and doing open mics and things and people started offering me money to come and do their shows and I was like, oh, this is fun. I'll do this for a while and then when it dries up, I'll go back to engineering, to my regular life. And, it, and then it didn't happen. Six months went by. And I, I was like, you know what? I want to do this. I don't want to go back to engineering. So then I had to make the call and go and tell my mom and go, hey, yeah, you know, I said I left my job and I was going to get another engineering job soon. Not going to happen. I'm going to do comedy. I really like this comedy thing. How does that go? Not well. <laughs> my mother's like, what, what, are you ta- what, what, what am I going to tell my friends in Nigeria? You're, You've left engineering, an engineering job, a good job as an engineer to become a clown. What, what is this nonsense? And so, but how I massaged my mother's fear was by saying to her, listen, I'm a qualified engineer. I've got the degree. I'll always have the degree and I can always go back to engineering anytime. I'm going to do this for a while and see what happens. And I can go back to engineering anytime. I'll always be an engineer. You can't take that away. And my mom was like, fine. But then later, when you finish this nonsense, you'll go back and get a proper job. Yeah, mom, it doesn't work out. I get a proper job. But uh, within a year of starting comedy, I got on a talent show, which was a massive TV show in England. And my mom was in the audience. So oh. that validated oh. everything. My mom was on TV 
with Jonathan Ross, who is was our equivalent of Jay Leno. Sure. So it was big. Yeah. So my mum is like, you mean you're on TV with Jonathan Ross, the, the white man on the TV. I we are going to be in the same place. That's yes, mum. And so she was in the audience. Jonathan Ross actually pointed to her and goes, Is that your mum in the crowd? And my mum stands up like this. Yes. <laughs> I am the reason this child is here. <laughs> I. So after that. My new career was completely validated right. in her eyes. Right. And she couldn't have been more supportive. Right. Well, doctor, lawyer, on television. Yes. In some way. Okay, exactly. Now you're good. Now you're good. Exactly. I'm good now. Aww. And now she loves it. <laughs> but then, okay, so that was how you came out to her as a comedian. As a comedian. Yes. Then a couple months later, you go back and like, so since that kind of worked out. Yes. Let me tell you something else about me. <laughs> yeah. So basically... She was like, okay, this comedy thing is fine, but when are you going to get married and have children? When is this happening? You, are, you, you know, and she kept going on and on. And then one day I just went, it's not happening, I'm a lesbian. You just blurted I, it I out? I literally just blurted it out like that. You weren't planning to say it? You just... It just came out. I was just like, you know what? She has to have known. How old are you at I'm this 50. point? At, yeah. No, no, at this point. Oh, well, at the when time. When you came out. I was, I'm going to say... 29, 30. And she didn't know. Your sisters and your brothers knew. Yeah, my brothers knew. My, it was obvious. I was always... Your sister and your brothers. Yeah, One sister, two, two brothers. Sisters, two, two brothers. Two they sisters. Knew. Yeah, two sisters, two and brothers. And they all knew. They knew. Because yeah, you knew. told them or because they just knew? No, because my brother, one of my brothers used to hang out with this girl who was gay. And, and she used to come to him when they were hanging out and go, you know what? I saw your sister in a gay club the other day. So she sn- totally snitched. I saw your sister in a gay club, and my brother like, yeah, whatever. So what? And you know, but <laughs> that would make a straight person be like, and like, yeah, no, yeah, that, yeah. Like, so my brother's like, yeah, what? So what? And they always kind of knew. I was a tomboy. I was always that kid. The tomboy, yeah. I was that kid. Yeah, running with the boys, climbing trees, doing all that stuff. I was like, I, I was never a girly girl. I hated wearing dresses. I, you know, it was. So I was, you dated I, men a little bit, though. Huh? You dated men a little bit, though. I did. Why? Well, because you, yeah, yeah. You're trying to conform to societal expectations. Society told you you're supposed to date a man. Yeah, so, so I was like, well, obviously I'm supposed to have boyfriends. So I'm going to have boyfriends. And you, had a, you had a few? I had a few. And it wasn't horrible. But I was like, mm. You do this amazing bit about the, <laughs> the <laughs> Matrix Oh yeah, the, and the man. Yes, <laughs> and you're like, ah, get away from me. <laughs> yeah, I used to get hold of penis and just go. <laughs> All right, so what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Okay. All right. Oh, 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 this is what you're supposed to do. So I was very much like that, and I used to attract certain types of men. I used to attract quite oh. feminine men who like strong women. So I did attract men like that. Or I, I attracted two types of men. Men who like stronger women, kind of more feminine men who like stronger women who like to be dominated. Or men who thought, ooh, I'm going to tame her <laughs> like a wild beast. Yeah. So those are the two types of men I tended to attract. Yeah. Neither of them which I, <laughs> I wanted. Yeah. But yeah, I did, you know, I did have boyfriends and it wasn't bad. But it just wasn't. So wait, what's me. your taste in women? I don't have a taste in women. You don't have a type. I don't. I have. I don't have a type. I've been. I mean, who do you attract? 
I attract lots of different types of women. When I was in England, my taste in women tended to be dark-skinned black women. That okay. was my thing. Okay. Black women. But that right, okay, but that's a demographic. There's that a personality, a, there's a vibe that you are attracted to or um, that, that you attract. Per, Personality-wise, someone fun, someone who's not you know, I'm attracted to that's the thing. I have dated all different types of women. It's interesting. You're kind of saying your strength and energy when it came to men, yeah. only certain men responded to that, yeah. right? And they're clearly yeah. responding to that. Either yeah. they want to be under that or they want to try to get over that. Yeah. But you're like, women are approaching you in an entirely different way. Different. And they're not yeah. they're not stuck on the strength part. No. Yeah. Some women were attracted to me. Because of my personality, personality, my big personality, some women are attracted to that. Some women just liked me. Some, some I just became friends with, and then it went. It became relate relationships of different types of women, different types of women, and uh, different races of women. When I got to America, when I was in England, it was black women, black women. But I'd never dated anybody but black women when I was in England. Yeah. Then I came to Los Angeles. <laughs> I went to Los Angeles, and I was like. It was it was so different the scene out here because in England you just dated whoever, but out in America there's like this whole you got to be a stud you got to be a femme you got to be this you got to dress this way to attract this type of woman, and that was all new to me because when I came out to America at the time I had long straight hair my 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 energy is quite masculine, but I didn't look super masculine I had long hair. I wore jewelry. I like to wear shorts. And when I when the weather's hot, I'm wearing shorts. And I'm not wearing them long basketball shorts with the basketball sliders. I'm wearing short shorts, you know? And that just did not fit into the aesthetic of the gay scene out here. So I'd come out here and I'd go to clubs and the black women were like, so what are you, man? You, you know, and I was like, I'd go to clubs and either the women dressed like Jay-Z or they look like Lil Kim. It was there was not in between. The, the women look yeah. like Jay Z yeah, or Lil Kim. It was either you had to, you know a lot of the clubs I went to was in New York. You know the more stud women were do rags and string vests and baggy jeans, and they were very masculine presenting, and their girlfriends were very feminine, short skirts, weaves, all of that. And I wasn't either of that. I was kind of androgynous in my look, so I struggled to get girlfriends when I first came out here because people be like, where are you though? Your, your hair's straight, but you got a t-shirt that hangs off your shoulder. Like, are you starting? You what are you? And I'd be like, I'm just Gina. I'm just, this is just how I am. I'm just, so it was a struggle. So then that was very much how it was in the black and like brown community. And so, but when I went beyond that and dated women, like I dated a Filipina and they weren't so much into the, different gender roles within. And so I dated more people who were kind of more like me. So then that's when I had to broaden my horizons. I'm like, well, these black women don't want me because, because I'm stuck in the middle between the butch and femme thing. I'm going to have to date outside of that. But then after a few years in the States, I shaved my head off. And then, I, then black women flocked to me once I picked a side and I went more masculine. More masculine. But I'm still not. I mean, if you look at me, I'm not really. I like. I'm not that. Isn't it an energy thing more than a an external presentation thing? Because uh, you're you seem. I don't want to say masculine, but let's say forceful yes. and strong. Yes. Whether your hair is straight or bald or dread or 
Well, when I when you know, I mean, it's a little bit better as I've got older. So as you get older, you learn more about yourself, and yeah. and, and I think the community's learnt more and now. There's a lot more, but when I came here, I was younger. So I'm 30 years old, 32 years old, whatever, in these clubs with 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And it was very rigid at the time. And I was like, I, I don't fit into this. So, yeah, it was a struggle. Yeah, the day I shaved my hair off, shaved that relaxer off and went, I, I went short fade, suddenly a lot more interest. <laughs> Black girls, all about it. A lot it. more interest. All about it. Yeah. That's hysterical. <laughs> so you were talking about the the racism that you faced on the job sites. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you've talked about this in your work. How is British racism different than American racism? You said American racism is in your face. Yes. The Brits are more ninja, undercover. Yeah. What are you talking about? Um, yeah, the racism is the same in that it's the Brits were the architects of racism. Sure. The architects. Colonialism, white supremacy, this, absolutely. Like, the Americans do it just, the Brits are better at it. That's basically it. I, I say the Brits are better. I mean, it goes way back to slavery. Sure. You know, um, Brits, Portuguese, the Europeans stole black people. Yeah. They stole black people well, as Americans did. They stole whole did. African countries. Exactly. Yeah. And Americans did, I, I do a bit in my set where I talk, they say that Americans did the equivalent of stealing something burglaring burglar somebody's house, burglaring someone's house, stealing their goods and keeping the goods in your own home. <laughs> That's what the Americans did in that they stole black people and had put them us to work on plantations in America, yeah. in America, amongst the Americans. Yeah. The Brits and Europeans did it differently. They stole black people, but outsourced. They hid what they did. They put black people on plantations in the Caribbean. That's where all their evil deeds were done, in the Caribbean, away from British society. Yeah, there were slaves in England, people enslaved in England in the households of England, but the majority of the evil, the horrific cruelty that's that was carried out uh, towards black people was done away from British society in the Caribbean, on the sugar plantations, on, on the right, right, you know, in, in the Caribbean. So it was, so Brits could pretend to be superior. Oh, we, we, we. so if you'd gone to England, so that, that burglarizing uh, analogy, if you'd gone to England in the 1800s and gone, hey, you stole black people, they'd have been like, but where? Where is the evidence? Because it was hidden away. They outsourced. And uh, because of that, they have this misguided sense of superiority mm. over Americans. Mm. Well, we're not racist. We, we abolished slavery before the Americans. We didn't. Yeah. But no, no. It's, there, no, there was absolutely no difference. On, so, on a day-to-day on a -day street level... Is a, it the same? On a day-to-day -day street level, it depends on where you are in England. Okay. It can be the same. Um, you know, black people are murdered on a, in England by racist too. Uh, Stephen Lawrence is our most famous example. Young man walking down the street with his friend, minding his own business, attacked and stabbed to death by a bunch of white racist youths. And then the police did nothing. Instead of trying to help this kid's mum get justice. They did everything in their power to investigate the victim because he was a black youth 
and in, investigate him instead. And he was, I believe he was 18. Oh. And it, but it, it, that, that case, the Stephen Lawrence case, basically uh, blew wide open the um, racism within the police force, the institutional racism within the police force. In the UK. So our police are just as racist as yours. Yeah. They just don't kill as many black people because they don't carry guns yeah, on a regular guns. basis. Yeah. So they have to work a lot harder to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> they gotta they gotta beat us, they gotta strangle us, they gotta hang us in cells. That <laughs> they gotta work harder at it. And that's why there's less black deaths at the hands. But there have been many black deaths at the hands of the police in the UK. So wait, you I'm assuming you're anti royalist. I'm not gonna say I'm anti, but I I am. You're like fuck the queen. I am ambivalent. I am ugh, whatever. <laughs> do you do you like Meghan Markle? I don't know her personally. No, but everybody so, has an but opinion. I am. My opinion is that every word that her and Harry have said is the utmost truth. Okay, it's the truth. Okay, actually, yeah, yeah. There is no doubt in my mind. Yeah, the the royal they're in the royal family's. Com- all its wealth is built on theft and genocide we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash if you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick let DoorDash bring dinner tonight my family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive last night we got some Indian food for my wife some gumbo for me and sushi for the kids and everyone was happy and we didn't have to do the dishes the process of ordering was quick and easy and I love DoorDash for real so I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer because I know DoorDash is your door to more Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. No, I mean, I wouldn't expect the Queen and them to be 
anti-racist. Well, exactly. <laughs> I would assume that they would say and believe that black people are lesser. And when as, as beautiful as she is, they're like, she's yes. an American actress. Yes. Like, are you, she's black. Are you fucking kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Is the baby going to be black? Like what? Yeah, that like, conversation took place. There's no way it didn't take place. Absolutely. There's no way. Not that she's the first black person in the royal family anyway. She isn't. Queen Charlotte Sophia, Queen Victoria's grandmother. Like you watch Bridgerton, right? That, no, my wife does. Bridgerton is based on facts. Okay. <laughs> Queen Charlotte in Bridgerton is based on a real person. Okay. Queen Charlotte Sophia, uh, the Queen, Queen Victoria's great grandmother, I believe. Actually, Queen Victoria's grandmother, maybe. She was actually what they call mulatto back in those but days. You live in L.A. Yeah. because that's better for your career. Yes. Do you prefer America to England? Yeah. Why? <laughs> because I've always said that, yes, there is nowhere you're going to go in the world apart from Africa. And even in parts of Africa, you still can't escape it and not escape racism. Racism is... Right prevalent it's 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 in our dna now and it's not just white people's dna it's in black people's dna now because we've been over hundreds of years we've assimilated that self hatred into our dna yes so you can't escape it anywhere uh england the the glass ceiling is the glass ceiling and you have a same a similar glass ceiling in america but at least in america the glass ceiling is a lot higher so I hit a glass ceiling for, with my career in England where I was seeing my white compatriots in comedy bypassing me to sell out stadiums. These are people that opened for me and suddenly, and I hit a glass ceiling where I was reasonably successful. You know, I had a house, I had a nice car, I had a decent life and people were like, well, you should be grateful for that. You're doing well. You know, because I was one of the few black comedians that, hit a certain level of success success in England. But I hit that glass ceiling and I couldn't get further than that. I couldn't get what my my other white comedian friends were getting. So I came to America because I knew that I could hit a glass ceiling in America. Obviously, there's certain things I'm never going to get that other white comics of my ilk are going to get. But at least when I hit that glass ceiling in America... I'm a millionaire when I hit it. <laughs> and there, there's the difference. It's a lot higher, the glass ceiling in America for me. You've mentioned several times in comedy and in your engineering life, being a woman tangibly holding you back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it seems to have over and over and over in different worlds for you. Oh, absolutely. Being a woman and a black woman. Yeah. And not having a specific look. I don't yeah. have that... Black woman look that's uh, the you know that fits into the ideal of white beauty. I don't have any of that, so I've got all of those things against me, which has held me back along the way. And you know, and I've batted against it. You know, I've tried to do my own thing. I've you know, uh, I couldn't get a stand up special on Netflix, so I made my own specials. I hired my own theatre, got my own film crew, made my own specials. I've always tried to circumvent those obstacles that have been put in my way. So I've never just sat back and complained. I've gone, all right, I'm going to see if I can get at things at different angles. And that's what I've done. I've been fighting my entire life. It's amazing the 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 ingenuity that you brought to the problem. And I can only imagine the frustration I would feel of like, it's over here in engineering, then I'm over here. And con, con, I mean, I've experienced that in my own way. 
But I've always been in the media world, right? So I'm like, that's part of the media world. We'll we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, God damn, I was in this world and it's beating me up. And I'm in this world that's beating me up. And I'm sure at home too, the expectation for you and your sisters is different than it is for your brothers. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, my mother was, you know, my mom was a single mother. Obviously my dad went back to Nigeria and left my mom with all of us kids. Wait, when did he go back? Oh, I was like, I'm going to say I was three. Are you the baby? No, I've got, uh, my mother then met someone else and had another child. After. Oh, so you're, when you were three, your father left the family. Yeah, so my brother was around 18 months old, Dele, and my youngest brother, Edwin, my mum was still pregnant with him. And your dad left. Yeah, so basically what happened. And like, you didn't see him after that? I never saw him again until I was 37 and went to Nigeria to do some shows. <laughs> but yeah, he went, they were in England, They in England in the 60s and 70s were super racist. So my dad was a qualified lawyer. My mother had been a head teacher in Nigeria. She was a school principal before the age of 25. So very high achieving people. They're in England. And in England, they're like, oh, great. You're very high achieving black people. Wonderful. You can work in the post office. You can drive a bus. And so my dad was like, I'm not driving a bus. I'm a lawyer. I'm, I, I'm going, let's go back to Nigeria and take these kids with us. And my mom was like, no, my, my children are British. And the, the reason we had our children here is so that they can avail themselves of the opportunities that being British, British entails. I'm going to stay here and sacrifice my career so these children can ha- can make something of themselves in England because this is where we're supposed to be. And my dad was like, okay then. And then he just left <laughs> and had a whole other family in Nigeria. Yeah. Oh, how many half brothers and sisters do you have? Uh, I have, uh, I met two of them. I think there's probably four, four of them. I met two when I went to Nigeria. Wow. So he went, remarried, had a whole other family. My mother was left in England with me. And my older sister and my two brothers. But well, then, no, my mother had to go into hospital by herself in England with nobody. She had no family. Me and my brother had to go into foster care temporarily because my mother had nobody. And she went into hospital by herself and had my younger brother by herself in a hospital in England in a foreign country where she had nobody. And then when she had my brother, then she came back to get us out of foster care. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is why my mother was so terrified and overprotective of us as kids because she was just... But you you had a stepfather. Yeah, that came later. Who was a problem. A problem is an understatement. What happened? He was a piece of shit. He was an abusive, horrible man. He came into my life when I was six. Um, You know, and... My mother was like, look, I mean, I've spoken to my mother about it later. I said to my mom, why did you, why? This man was physically abusive to you and to us. Why did you stay with this man? And she was like, he was a good man. He provided. What man would take a woman who already has four children? He took, you know, he took on a woman with four children. And I'm like, yeah, but he was awful. (laughs) You know, uh, and then my mum had my younger sister with him. And, uh, you know, I remember when my younger sister was born. I was six. And my stepdad pulled me aside and said to me, I'm six years old, pulls me aside and says, I don't like you. And you six like, years old? Six years old. And you don't like me. This is my child. Stay away from my child. Your stepfather said, I don't like you? I'm six years old. 
To a six-year-old? Six years old. What and he that, never liked me. What did that do to you? Uh, nothing, because I knew he didn't like me. <laughs> Actually, he came into my life when I was about four or five. And then my sister was born when I, uh, when I was six. So from the age of four, I knew he didn't like me. Uh, so he came in. He was very doting to my younger brothers. Boys, my boys. It was all about the boys, but he did not care about the girl children. And it was obvious as a kid, he'd be playing with my younger brothers and completely exclude me from all play and just ignore me. So from the age of four, I knew he didn't like me. So when he pulled me aside at six, I wasn't surprised at all. I was like, yeah, I don't like you. You're horrible. Um, and then when his daughter was born, he completely threw my brothers to the wayside and it was all about his child. And he kept that child separate from us. And as kids, when it was her birthday, lavish presents, like that. He'd buy toys. He'd go to Hamleys and buy toys and spread all the toys out. And then we'd all have to stand and pose for pictures, standing next to these really lavish toys. But then we were never allowed to play with those toys. After the, the photo, so in all the pictures of us as kids, we'd all be standing there miserable next to all these toys that we'd know that we were never going to be allowed to play with. And my mum being so overprotective, she'd never let us ride bikes and things, but he bought my sister a bike. And then put the bike in the front room, like a shrine. And we knew that we could never ride this bike. So at nighttime, when everybody was asleep, me and my brothers used to sneak down and sit on the bike in the middle of the night. You know, so that's the kind of, and that was the kind of stepdad I had. And it just became worse as I got older. And I was a mouthy kid as well. How long did he stay in your life? He was with my mother till, he came when I was four. And we finally left when I was, I'm going to say, 17. So, okay, right around 17, yeah. you talk about in your book yeah. that you attempted suicide. I, well, I attempted suicide at 16, not because of him. That was because of my mom. Well, what, what happened? A um, lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. You know, immigrant family, my mom raising us pretty much single-handedly because my stepdad had nothing to do with the raising of us. He had no interest in us except when he wanted to come and beat us or whatever for some small, in, in you know, misbehavior. Um, so she was very, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a doctor, you study hard, you do this. You do. So it was a lot of that. And I was brought up with that in my mind. I've got to be a doctor. I've got to do well. I've got to. So there was that pressure. And then getting to school, being laughed at, not being, getting into fights all the time. So I had nowhere and nobody really. I had bunches of friends at school, but the moment I'd have an argument with one of them, they'd all turn on me because I was the African kid. They were all, like, uh, you know, Caribbean kids. So as soon as I argued with one, they'd all turn on me, you African, this, that. So that's what I was constantly treading eggshells at school and at home my whole life. And uh, I got into a fight with a girl at school, long story short. Got into a fight with her. I unleashed years of pent-up fury on this girl. Beat and her up good. Beat her up good. Dislocated her shoulder. And it was in the middle of my exams. I was doing my exams. And the, I got called into the principal's office and they were telling me that I was going to be thrown out of the school. And I was like, I hate this school anyway. I don't care. But I was like, as long as you let me finish my exams, because if I can't finish my exams, my mother is going to kill me. And I'm dead. And they were like, well, you can finish these exams, but I was also going to come back to the school to do advanced levels, which are the exams that get you into university. 
And they were like, but you can't come back here to do your advanced levels. And that was a big deal. And obviously my mum went absolutely nuts. So I got home and I just, hours of abuse from my mother about how I've ruined our prospects of me becoming a doctor, which didn't happen. She found me another school that I went and did my A-levels in. It was no biggie. But at the time, she just went laid into me that I was going to be useless. I was this, that, and the other. And, you know, at that point, I just I just had enough. I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in this family. As Africans, we believe in reincarnation. But I was like, I don't want to be in this family. I'm going to kill myself and hopefully come back in a better family. So I went up to my room and just necked a bunch of uh, aspirins, as it turned out. They were, got a tube of aspirins from the bathroom cabinet and just knocked them all back. And then How many? It was at least 40 or 50. It was a whole tube of them. Knocked them back. And then lay down and waited to die. Because in the movies, that's what happens. You, you take a bunch of tablets. So you were really doing it. Oh, I did that shit. <laughs> I did that. You, I mean, because some people do the thing and then are immediately like, oh, my God, what have I done? And try to save themselves. You were like, no, I'm laying down waiting for the Wait, Grim Reaper. Let's go. That. Yeah, let's do it. Took the tablets and lay down on the bed and waited for it to happen. And nothing was happening. And after about 20 minutes, I'm like, what's going on? When, when is this going to kick in? Like... So I basically had to fake it till I make it. I'm going to lie here and be unconscious until I'm unconscious. And I kind of lay there for about God knows how long. And then eventually uh, my mum called me to do something. I didn't answer because I was in. Right. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm going to lie here and <laughs> Fuck die. Fuck you, mom. And my mother sent my older sister up to get me. And my sister comes up and it's like, Gina, can I hear mom calling you? And I'm like. I'm method. I'm going to fake it till I make it. I'm oh, going to lie here and be dead. And then my sister sees a note that I've written in the, the empty pillbox. So she starts shaking me and slapping the shit out of me because my older sister also was pretty physically abusive towards me uh, as a kid. So she starts slapping me to wake me up and punch me in the face. And I'm like, this bitch, bro, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm taking these slaps. I'm like, I'm not. So long story short, they call an ambulance. Paramedics come. Luckily, I'd taken aspirin. If it had been uh, Tylenol or something like that, I'd be dead now. You wouldn't be having this conversation with me. But aspirins don't have this. They take a lot longer to work on your system. So, so nothing really happened? Nothing happened. They basically, the, the paramedics came, took me to hospital. They knew I was pretending to be unconscious, but I was not coming out of it. They were like, come on, love, we know you're pretending. And I'm like... <laughs> Still pretending. They had to carry me down four, like, four flights of stairs. They were so pissed. But they took me to hospital and I had my, they, they pumped my stomach. Yeah. They, they strapped me down, stuck a vacuum cleaner pipe into my, down my mouth, down my throat, into my stomach. No anesthetic. I'm awake for this entire thing. And pumped the contents of my stomach out before they, the, the drugs could do any damage. So, yeah, that was my first and only suicide attempt. <laughs> yeah. That's a hell of a story. Yeah, That's now in my stand-up routine. I didn't even know it was funny until I was telling the story on, a, uh, on another podcast and they were laughing so much. I was like, hmm, this could be in my stand-up routine. And now it's a stand-up I mean, routine. you make it funny. Yeah. Because <laughs> you could tell that story in a sad way. That's, you know, and have us crying, but you told it in a funny way. And because there's been enough time, that yeah. yesterday is not yeah. funny. I'm 50 but years like, old now. I was 16. <laughs> but I mean, it's it, it's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I, if you make it funny, mm -hmm. 
I guess you can make anything funny if you yep. try. Yeah, anything. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a Jerry Seinfeld Amex commercial years ago mm-hmm. where he goes to London and tries to perform and it, and he's dying. And then he uses the Amex to go here and there and eat and travel. And then he's getting into the vibe of what England is and he knows the language. And then he's up there doing comedy to where I'm like, I don't know what he's saying, but the audience <laughs> is dying. And right. now he's, he's got it. And right. Amex helped him get there. But I wonder for you as a British comedian coming over here, is there a shift you have to make to, you know, translate or to be ready for American audiences? Not really. Because we had all your movies. Yeah. You we know had all your already. television. Yeah. We, I knew pretty much, ev- not everything, but 90%. Uh, America's a huge impact on British culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'd had all your movies. We'd had your TV. I'd been I watching you. your sitcoms. I, I was you. watching different strokes when I was a kid, yes. wishing that I lived with Mr. Drummond. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So yes. when I came to America, I. You watched the Jeffersons? We never got the Jeffersons. Okay. We got the Cosbys. Okay. Got different strokes. You got a different world. Uh, we got a different world. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, so we got. What a else lot. did you love? Huh? What else did you love from America? When I you love Cosby. Yeah. Yeah. Love the Cosby Show. Yeah. I wanted to be in that family. Of course. And I loved Everybody did. Yeah. Different strokes. I mean, looking back on it now, it's kind of prob- problematic. The whole white savior thing. But yes. Yes. I so wanted to be in that house with Mr. Drummond. Right. Right. Like, yeah. I wanted that. And you know, so I grew up watching your TV shows, and so and as a child. I always had a feeling that I was going to live in America one day. From the age of four, when we got your bazooka gums, and like, do you remember the bazooka gums? And you'd unwrap them, and then they'd have the little comic strip, and then you could, you'd have these toys that you could buy for $3.99, mm-hmm. and you could order them. We didn't get the toys in England. We only got the gum. And I'd open these comic strips and read the comic strip, and I'd go, I want that toy that's $3.99. But only American kids get these toys but we only get the gum, but we don't get the toys that comes with the... So from the age of four, I was like, American kids have it way better than here. And from the age of four, I was like, I'm going to live in America one day. I'm not this country. I'm not meant to be in this country. And I used to say to my mum as a kid, your cousins and stuff went to America. Like, why did you come here? You could have... I could have been born in Miami. Like, what are you thinking? So as a kid, I knew that. So even when I worked as an engineer, I worked for Otis, which is an American company, because I was like, I'm going to be an engineer here, get the qualifications, get promoted, and then I'm going to transfer to America. So my entire life has been a plan to come to America. And so coming to America was not a big culture shock for me because I'd been studying for this my entire life. Um, Even when I started doing comedy in England, I'd come out to the States on vacation and go to comedy clubs and go up on stage and go, can I go up and do five minutes? I'm a comedian from England. And I, so I was practicing, you know, uh, the Bay Area Black Comedy Competition yeah. back in 2006. I flew myself over from England yeah. and entered that com- and uh, competition. Won, and won that. I, no, I didn't win it. I came third. Okay. But I feel myself over. The, the prize, the, the first prize was $2,000. I remember listening to the American comics and they're all going, oh, yeah, if you win, it's $2,000. And I remember thinking, I've spent double that just on hotel and flights. <laughs> this is not about the money for me. I'm just coming over here to see if, I, if my stuff will work in front of an urban crowd in Oakland. And it did. And it did. 
And, you know, I wrote stuff for it, you know. Obviously, I'm a British black comedian. They didn't know there were black people in England, so I had to write material to to address that. You keep talking. I mean, you 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 portray your career in comedy kind of as like, I tried it. It worked. I kept going. It just kept working. And I just <laughs> get – and I know eventually nah. you're going to die. Oh, yeah. Right? Nah. It, it didn't just keep working. I mean – I have, I've had some hideous deaths. Hideous. <laughs> everybody, everybody dies oh, yeah, I've had at some, some point. Deaths. Like, and some of the deaths are worse than others. Like, I'd rather you boo me off. At least there's some passion in it. There's some passion in being booed Tell off. Tell me about a bad death. A bad death is when people just go, anyway, so what are you doing on Saturday? Are you, uh... <laughs> when they just start having conversations. So are the kids coming over, what are you, what are you doing? That is, to me, is a worse death. Then people going, boo, get off, we hate you. <laughs> Where did that happen? Oh, it's happened to me a few times. I remember uh, I remember doing a, cor- a corporate show for Microsoft back in the day. So corporates are good money gigs. You get yeah. paid fat checks. Yeah. And I, it was in Scotland, which is not that friendly to black people. Okay. So I knew it, this was going to be a problem when I got the gig. It was a corporate gig in Scotland – on Rabbi Burns Day. So Robert Burns is a famous Scottish poet. And they have these events that sort of celebrate him every year. And they were doing this Robert Burns night. And they booked me for it. And I was like, I'm not Scottish. I have no knowledge of this poet. Why are they booking me for this show? But whatever. The money was too much to say no to. And so it was in a tent. And 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 then they were like... and. You have to sit and eat dinner with us before the show. And I hate sitting with my audience before the show. I don't want them to see me. I want that element of surprise. I want, you know, because I'm very much of the familiarity breeds contempt. And also, when you're having dinner, people are going to try to get you to do your bits. Yeah. Be funny. Make me laugh. Yeah. I'm like, oh, can I do that on stage exactly. when it's a whole thing? So I didn't want to do that. But yeah. they were like, no, that you have to have to. So it's this massive tent. I have to eat dinner with these people before. And then I go up on stage and it's just pure white people. And I'm following two famous Scottish comedians, which was ridiculous. I'm like, put me on first because I'm unknown to these people. I'm not Scottish. And let these famous Scottish comedians, they put those guys on first and then me. It was just horrific. But I was like, I'm being paid 25 grand. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And I went up on stage and died the death of a thousand deaths. And I'm dying <laughs> in front of people who I'd just eaten dinner with. <laughs> so dinner, these people I'd eaten with and they kind of liked me were now... <laughs> not laughing. Just looking at me with disdain. It's not even... They didn't even boo me off. It was the disdain. The, <laughs> that, and it was just awful. And I died... I tried to save the situation. I went out into the crowd and tried to do crowd work. And I talked to people and I'd go up to and go, yes, yeah, so you're the, and you're the, you know, vice president of marketing. So, and they'd be like, <laughs> it was the worst. Anyway, I came off stage and then I had to, there was only one exit. So I had to walk through the crowd of people that I just died in front of. Right. Excuse me. 
Excuse me. Sorry. 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 Excuse me. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry. The worst. <laughs> and then they tried to not pay me. I ended up only getting half of my money. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> they were like, she was horrendous. Yeah, they called my agent and like, they tried Dave, to not pay me Dave my money. Dave Chappelle's like, yo, I get paid for the attempt. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I only got half my money, but it was still a lot of money. And I was on the first train out. I'm not a morning person. I was on the 6 a.m. train out of there Wait, the next morning. What's worse for black people, Scotland or Ireland? And I assume they're worse for black people than England. Yeah, I think I'm going to say Scotland is worse, but... Racism, as I said, pervasive. It's everywhere. And the Irish are worse because they were once also abused by the Brits. A a famous British person said to me, the Irish are the niggers of of Great Britain. Yes, they were. I never heard that before. They were. They were also the same in England. Uh, You know, Irish... When the Irish came in England, in America, when the Irish came to America, they were also considered a lower were, class of people first, until eventually they, they joined the police yes, force and then yeah. they became white. Yes, yes. They became white and yes. then turned around and abused the black people that they were in the trenches with. So, yeah. I remember, you know Chris Spencer? Oh, I do. I yeah. love Chris Spencer. He took me to a low-key comedy spot one right. night. There's maybe 50 people in the right. audience and this prop comic i don't know her name maybe you know her name but i don't know her name got up and was do and before she came up chris was like yo she got crush watch watch what does eating healthy mean to you whatever your eating goals thrive market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials and getting thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house i love that thrive market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials thrive markets got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly and as a thrive member i save on every order you Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. She died so hard. We were not laughing. And, like, the previous comic had killed, so we're die- holding our stomachs. And then she come and But the thing, I've seen a couple people die, not that many, right? Because it's unusual, yeah. right? Yeah. But she got mad. Like, it was our fault that we weren't laughing. So now she's kind of, like, losing the character, losing the energy, kind of, like, <laughs> yeah, talking yeah. back to us. Like, these jokes are funny. What's wrong with you people? And I'm going, yo, money, what's happening right now? Like, this is... 
And, you know, finally she put her props away and stormed off stage. And the next comic came and murdered. They're like, it wasn't us. It was you. But yeah. to see somebody get mad about it. Yeah, I don't get mad. You gotta like, you gotta, I don't get mad. I go off and assess. I reassess and I go, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? What could I have done better? And I have to reset my Gina is funny meter you know? <laughs> what is the Gina is funny meter <laughs> You know, after you have a horrible death, you start to reassess. Oh, your internal confidence of yeah. how funny you are. Yeah. Yeah, you hold it together. I mean, I don't blame the audience. Um, if I die, I die. I mean, I usually if I, I mean, I haven't died for because <laughs> it could happen. Oh, it can happen. It doesn't listen. matter how good you are. It could happen anytime. Oh, listen, I ate shit. When I did Shaq's all stars, which is on DVD, I ate shit that night mm. and I had to go, you know what? I'm on TV. Fuck this crowd. I'm going to play to the camera. And I did my set to the camera because I'm like, this is going to edit great. And I know these jokes are good because these jokes have been killing. But this crowd is not my crowd. You know, it was in Atlanta over All-Star Weekend or whatever that weekend is where it's all basketball players. And the show started late and there's all these women walking in dressed the nines, hoping to bag a basketball player. It was that kind of crowd. And they're all looking at me like, hey, this bitch ain't said nigga or motherfucker. What is this bullshit? She's not black enough for us. She's doing it, it differently. Yeah. So they were not feeling me at all. There was only one joke of mine that they laughed at. Oh, why is it's it the that, rapper joke? The oh, bit what? where I do the bit about the rappers going, motherfucker, bitch. That's the joke that they, they laughed at. The rest of my stuff. Well, why just, is that you kill one night, take those same jokes the next night, and it doesn't? Why would that happen? It's, it's, it's a mystery. It's a vibe. It's, it's a all vibe. about the vibe of the crowd. You know? My thing is, you could be funny. You could be the best comedian in the world. But if people don't like you. They got to like you. They're not going to laugh at your jokes. Got, you can have the right. best jokes in the world. If that's they don't right. like you, right. they're not laughing. Right. We got to feel like we like you. Right. And that crowd was not yeah. feeling me. So it doesn't matter if I had the best jokes in the world, that crowd was not feeling me. They were like, this is like this is Shaq's All-Stars. And it's a very, uh, very... They had not come to see you. They had come to a party where you were. Yeah, there was comedy on and the type of comedy that they'd come for. I was not it. So they weren't feeling it. Um, so, you know, and it ha- it's happened and it was but horrible. Isn't it, is it part of your thing and your management to put you in situations where you're going to succeed and avoid putting you in front of audiences that, that may not like you? No, or you I, just don't know? I don't want to be one of those people that are afraid of specific types. You're not of afraid. You're not afraid, but if it's not, if it that didn't work for you or for the audience, right? It's just not the right fit. She's funny, but just this was not the right moment no, for her. It was a, a mix of very various other things because I've done super hardcore urban audiences yeah. and killed. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know what? I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. But I'm confident and I own this difference and I, and you're going to fucking love it. Yeah. And that is my attitude and I come with it and it usually works. <laughs> yeah. That was just a, you know, it was the night, Shaq sitting in the front row just looking at me like. Not laughing. Because he likes that real hood comedy. Yeah. So he's looking at me like. So then that kind of infects the people around yeah. it. So there's all kinds of things that happened that night. 
But I played the camera. If you watch the set. You got it. You got it. It looks great. So were you are one of the creators of Bob Loves Ashiola. <laughs> Which you said completely wrong. Oh, my God. We'll oh. edit that. Bob Hart's Abishola. Excuse me. Bob Hart's Abishola. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, I've, I, it's, it's a sweet sitcom, yes. right? There's, there's a lot of love in it. And his tenderness, toward, he definitely loves her. Yes. Like the way that he looks at her, you're like, he, right? Like, oh my God, you're so sweet. I love you. I just, right. And, like, it, it, and that's really nice. Where Talk about where the ideas, because you're with Chuck Lorre, who's like yeah. television, you know. God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That wasn't my show idea. It was his idea. It was Chuck's. So, summer 2018, I get a call out of the blue. I'm living in New York happily. Me and my missus are in New York. Doing my spots, I'm traveling around doing my comedy, I'm making my little living. Are you married? No, okay. but I call but, it my okay. missus. We've okay. been together 10 years. Okay. We bought a house together. We're as good as married. Yeah, okay. Um, Do you want to be married? Or not really? <sighs> okay. I don't care for these. Okay. <laughs> no, I get it. I, I get don't it. care for these things. I'm like, we're yeah. together. Yeah. We have a home together. Yeah. Uh, we are in each other's wills. Like, yeah. we are, this is us. Like, yeah. do we have to do that just because society says we have to? I'm glad that people have the right yeah. to get married if they want. Yeah. I'm all for it. But if you can also have the right to not get married if you uh, don't absolutely, want to. Absolutely. But I'm not saying I never will. I might one day, but I'm just, ugh. marriage has never worked out great for members of my family. So <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to jinx the good relationship I have by oh getting married. My God. <laughs> so... You were living in New York. Living in New York, my missus, happy. I get a call from my agent say, Chuck Lorre wants to meet you. They're going to fly you over to Los Angeles for a meeting. And I'm like, all right, if, we're fly- if they fly me first class, I'm good to go. So I go. And uh, it's his idea for a show. He, he loves Billy Gardell. He wants to make another show with him. But he doesn't want to make another Mike and Molly. And he's just been on vacation to Africa. Don't ask me where. He said Africa. <laughs> <laughs> But he met a lot of cool black people and he was like, you know what? And this was in the middle of Trump craziness. Yeah. And he's like, I want to make a show that negates what Trump is trying to do to this country. That was his original idea. And he wants, and he's like, I want an African woman. And that's where, you know, I brought you. So at first I was suspicious, you know, yeah. and I actually turned it down. I told, spoke to my agent afterwards. And I was like, ah. He because, offered to have you create the show with him. Well, he didn't say create originally. He worked with as a consultant. Okay. And I was like, No, I'm good. African consultant. What? What is this bullshit? Yeah. This is nonsense. Yeah. So you want to take all my ideas? Because here's the thing. I w- the previous year, I'd gone around all the networks pitching a show based on my upbringing and family and stuff. And nobody wanted it. We don't know what to do. We don't get it. Nobody wanted it. But then this white man comes and goes, I want to make a show with Nigerians. And they're like, oh, well, then let's do it. And I'm so in my head, I'm like, fuck that. Fuck. So I was suspicious. And I didn't want to do it. Luckily, I have a brother, younger brother and a best friend who will call me and tell me I'm being an idiot. And like, this is an opportunity for you. Like, get in the door. You've been trying to get in the door and you've had doors shut in your face. Here's this wealthy, well-connected comedy TV titan who's opening the door 
and you're going to turn and walk away. Are you stupid? And I was like, yeah, maybe you're right. So I took a second meeting with the guys, sat in a room, and then I just started vibing with Chuck. I was like, well, he seems no nonsense. He seems no bullshit. He seems genuine. And I'm, I'm like, all right. And I said to them, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do this properly. If I say Nigerians don't do this, or we cannot do this, we will not do this. Capiche? <laughs> and they were like... So, so that's where you went from consultant to... Because you're a creator. Yes. There's a whole different level of yeah. check, of, yeah. of responsibility. Of... Yeah. So basically, once I got in the room, I started giving them ideas, creating characters. I picked the names. I, I, I gave them the family dynamics of Abishola's family and how that these two families would come together and what kind of... Uh, challenges that these two families would have coming together. And we just started to write a pilot. Wait, why'd you choose Abishola? Because uh, it's a Yoruba tribe. I picked the Yoruba tribe, which is not my family's tribe. Everybody thinks I'm Yoruba because I created the show and picked the Yoruba tribe. But in London, I was surrounded by Yoruba people and their names are very phonetic. Mm -hmm. So you look at the letters, you read the letters, you pronounce the name. It's Abishola. It's... Spelled exactly as it said. To you. So, <laughs> no. To, to you. Now, if you look at the letters and just read no, you're them. Really well, I could, I could see how Americans would look at that and be like, what the fuck does that say? Yeah, but if you just go read the letters. Abby Shola. I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. So that's why. I but you it. might have. But how often do you get Abishola? I, but that is kind of how it's pronounced. I'm sure like, that's how it's pronounced. Okay. But it doesn't matter. You can pronounce the letters and you're going to be in did somebody say, I mean, but your idea was, this is authentic to the Yoruba community around me, and it seems very phonetic. Yeah. Did folks say, Lori, CBS, say like, that's going to be hard to pronounce? No, Chuck was into it. Okay. Because originally when I asked them, what do you want to call the Nigerian woman? They had no idea. Uh, uh, Alan Eddy, the other two exec producers who, were, who worked with Chuck, they suggested, oh, we're thinking maybe Lupita. And I'm like, okay, I see where you're coming from. Because Lupita Nyong'o is the biggest right. African actress right now right. in America. And so your brain immediately goes to her. But here's the thing. Uh, she's Kenyan, one, wrong side of Africa. Completely wrong country. One. Number two, uh, I believe her parents were diplomats. They traveled a lot. She was born in Mexico City. Right. So her parents gave her the name Lupita, probably for shits and giggles. I don't know, but I can <laughs> but guarantee not, not an African. Not yeah, a, but I can guarantee you there is not another African on the planet called Lupita. So let me help you with this. I'm going to pick the Yoruba tribe and I'm going to give you a list of names. Okay. I'm going to pick the simplest names that I think that Americans will be able to pronounce at some point and their meanings. And I gave them the list of names and Abishola was one of them and Chuck loved it. And, you know, he was the one that was like, let's call it Bob. We were like, should it be Bob and Abishola? Bob loves Abishola. And he's like, I've done the and. I've done Dharma and Greg. I've done the ands. And everybody loves Raymond. That loves thing has been done. Let's do hearts like the emoji. So it was completely him. I don't know if he had weird feedback. That never got to me. Okay. He was like, this is what we're going to call the show. And that's it. And when Chuck says it, that's how it is. And how I became a co-creator the second day in of helping them write this pilot, he they called my agent and was like, forget this consultant thing. You know, Chuck just wanted to, to make Gina a consultant because he didn't know whether he'd like her or not. 
or whether he'd be able to stand to be in a room with her for more than six hours. So the consultant thing was he's, you know, get out of jail free card. So if he didn't like her, he could just go, all right, here's a few thousand. Thanks for your help. Get lost. But once he, I got in the room and they were like, oh, she's funny. She's good at what she does. She's bringing, like, we cannot do this without her, basically. So then they upped me from consultant to producer you're, and co-creator. You're in what, season four? Well, we've just finished season four. We've been picked up for season five. So this was two days into getting, writing the pilot. close to that syndication season. Uh, syndication's not a thing anymore. What? Oh, because yeah, it goes done. to streaming? Oh, yeah, it's done. Really? Yeah. That whole... Get to yeah. season seven, nobody cares This anymore. is why we're on strike. That's right. right. That's right. That's this right. is why we're on strike, because writers are not getting the money from their so, shows that they you, used to. But you see the future as we... When when it ends on CBS, we go to Hulu or Netflix or so, and live there. I mean, it's being shown on different networks, so I still get very nice residual checks. Uh, I am our show and Abbott Elementary are the last bastion of network twenty two episode television. Wow, that's all going to be dead soon. Like, and this is why the writers are on strike because that's it. And now the streamers. They don't pay residuals. They is, don't pay the money. You know, is, writers are struggling. But is this show your biggest earner? If Absolutely. Yeah, you have your show, you have your comedy, you have your stand-up. Oh, yeah. Right, but this... this it, My stand-up earnings pale into significance <laughs> next to the money that I've been earning on this show. Yeah. I've never earned this much money in my life. Yeah. I've always made a good living doing stand-up. This is... But... At my level where I was doing my own little specials and doing my own little gigs and whatnot, I was never going to be a millionaire because I wasn't getting the opportunities that will catapult you to the Chris Rock, the Chappelle's, the Amy Schumer's. I was never going to get that. I don't have the look. I don't have the support in the industry. I just don't have it. So I was always making a good living because just by virtue of how damn good I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I make a good living because I built my own little audience. How, how many nights a week were you touring in the past to make a good living? Oh, every at least three weeks out of the month, I'm on a plane going somewhere doing something. Right. And, you know. And if you're on a plane, you're going to do five, six yeah, gigs I'm going, in yeah, Denver. Yeah, I'm either going to a comedy club where they pay me a fee and I'm doing five shows. Which is to me is hard because you're doing five shows and they're paying you one fee, which is not a lot. Um, what I st- had started to do before I got Bob Hart's was going, you know what? I don't want to do so because a lot, a, a lot of these comedy clubs don't book you unless they think you can sell tickets. And right. I'm not famous enough in America to right. sell tickets. Right. So what I started doing was just booking these little small theaters, 300, 400 seaters, and then working my ass off to promote that show and sell it out. And then with these little one night in a little 300 seater would pay me more than an entire weekend at a comedy club right. doing six shows early and late shows. So I started to pull away from comedy clubs. You know, this is my entrepreneurial spirit kicking in because I've always had to try and find ways to make my money. So that's what I started to do. It just, I got a promoter called Jin Moon and I just, me and her worked together to just book these little theaters, which is what I'm doing now. I'm still doing that. You know, I'm here doing the Brooklyn Bell House, uh, you know, in New York, and it's a little 400-seater theater, and I just booked it and, and promote it myself. And so that's what I started to do. 
So I was making a good living. And then I was quite famous in England. So in England, I can sell out a 2,000-seater theatre, but not by virtue of any of the industry help. This is just me, root, grassroots, building my crowd, being at shows, giving out flyers after every show with my email, saying, please join my mailing list. You know, just me working my ass off to build my small audience that I have. So, and that, so I've made a good living doing stand-up, but I was never going to be a Chappelle or a Chris Rock because how many black women get to that level? Wanda Sykes. We, I'm not sure that Wanda. I and mean, Wanda's, Wanda's brilliant. Not, she's brilliant and she's, she's not level. even on that level. Right, she's very high. I don't think she's on their and level. She's, and she's funny and she's and brilliant. She's, she's funny great. and brilliant and the yeah. most famous probably black stand-up, uh, black female, female stand-up yeah. we have. Yeah, and even probably. she's not on she's those not on levels. Level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm new to this country. I have a different accent. I have a different look. Yeah. People aren't quite sure what to make of me. So I was never going to get to those levels. So I had become almost resigned to, I'm going to just keep trying to make my little money. But at some point, I'm not, I'm going to hit 60, 65. I don't want to be getting on a plane three weeks of the month. I've got to think of what I'm going to do after this. It was getting to that point where I was like, I'm coming up to my 50th birthday. I can't be traveling like this. I'm going to have to maybe go into public speaking or become an agent or something. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what was coming next. It was getting to that point where I would have to sit down and really think hard about this career and what. And then, ta-da! And now you're a millionaire. And now I'm a millionaire. <laughs> Are you really? Yes. Wow. Can you see how much you've made from Bob Hearts? Oh. No. Give, give, give me a broad, just give me a broad figure. No. Not as much as I could have made. What if, does that mean? If this show had been made 10 years ago. Mm, different landscape. I would be making Friends and Big Bang Theory money. Mm, like, Big Bang Theory kids were making a million a show. A million dollars an a episode. Show. I'm not even making a 20th of that. But it's still more money than I've ever made in my life. One so I cannot things, complain. One of the things about Bob Hartz that I noticed, a lot of times... In American television yes. and movies, when you're dating, when you're white and dating or married a black person, part of the point is to show how moral and just and good you are. Yeah, and I don't, I don't quite get that no. vibe from you. No, from Bob Hart's, although his goodness reads through because he loves this woman. Yeah. So much. Yeah. I mean, when we were writing it, I was very, very intentional Okay, about it. I was like, okay, we're doing this interracial thing. People are not going to be happy. This white man with this, you know, when the trailer came out, there was a lot of negative, oh, this, this white man with this, but it's always, and I was like, I'm going to make sure this ain't going to be no white savior thing. They're going to be equals. And the fact is he's going to have to work hard to earn her love because she is completely self-sufficient. She's looking after herself, managing her life. She has a good job. She don't need him. He ain't coming to save her. He ain't coming. So that's, I made a point of making sure that that was the case, that it wasn't going to be this white man rescuing this poor African woman. and bring, It's not going to be like that. There are two equals and he's going to have to work for her love. She's, he's going to have to prove that he is worthy of her love. And I made sure that we did that and we made them equals. And I didn't want to do, look at this wonderful white man. They, look how wonderful these white people are. That, that 
that it was not the case. And, and if you watch the episode, you'll see that there are difficulties. You know, uh, the Dottie, Bob's mother, bordering on racist at the beginning when she first meets Abishola and they have to overcome those differences and they come to, to love each other. But we, I wanted it to be as real as possible. Still funny, but real. Thanks so much to Gina for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Instagram at Torre Show, on Spill at Torre, on TikTok at Torre. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.